It's a, it's a great thing to be on a roll, isn't it? Uh, you know, when, when, when you're on a roll, when everything goes well in whatever you're doing. Um, once or twice, I, it's happened to me in sports. I've never been a particularly great sportsman, but I uh, used to play a lot of football. And uh, once or twice, I would play uh, a game of football where every pass uh, was a brilliant one. Every tackle came off. Um, on the tennis court, uh, once or twice in my dreams, um, I've been on a roll. Every, every shot has come sweetly off the middle of the racket. Uh, you know, when shots uh, land on the line and uh, when even the net cords drop over the other side of the net, it's great when you're on a roll. Uh, and maybe it's happened in business to you, when every decision you make turns to gold, when, when you can do no wrong. Maybe you just feel like that sometimes in life. You're on a roll, everything's going well. It's great being on a roll. In the last few weeks, I've met some people who've begun to get on a roll in the Christian life. Uh, having been challenged by this little book of Haggai, I've, I've had congregation members tell me how they've been determined to deal with sin, uh, to cut things out of their life that they know are hindering their relationship with God. And as they've done that, already they've seen the difference. They've begun to know the joy of God's blessing upon them and now they want to deal with other things in their lives. They're on a roll. Others have told me how they are resolved to be wholeheartedly sold out for Jesus. Uh, they want to be focused on the work of building up the kingdom of God. And already they've noticed how life seems to be so much more exciting. They've experienced this joy of knowing God's blessing upon them. And that has made them even more determined to be godly. And so they're on a roll. And I've met with people who've uh, considered themselves nominal Christians as a result of looking at this book of Haggai. And uh, they've just got going with Jesus in these last weeks. For them, uh, things are falling into place in the Christian life and they, they can't wait to discover more of, of walking faithfully with their God. It seems that they're on a roll as well. And that happens in the Christian life. We can get on a roll. Uh, we can also get on a downward spiral. Uh, that, it seems, once we're on that, is very difficult to break. I'll tell you how that happens. We, we disobey the Lord in something. And uh, because we disobey him, he seems far from us and so we don't read our Bibles. Or when we do, uh, it doesn't seem to make much impact in us and we don't seem to want to pray and so we're not reading the Bible and praying and so we disobey him in other things and we're even further from him, it seems, and it goes on and on. It's very difficult to uh, stop that downward spiral. Now, you see, that's where the Israelites were back in chapter 1 of Haggai. Uh, they were feathering their own nests, building their own houses, not bothered about serving the Lord or about building his temple. They knew nothing of God's blessing, quite the opposite. Uh, they knew only hardship, which actually had come from the hand of the Lord upon them as judgment on them. So they had no desire to serve the Lord, and so it went on. The less they wanted to serve him, the harder times got and the less they wanted to serve him, they were on a downward spiral. But by contrast, we saw last time what happens when people get on a roll spiritually. As we obey the Lord, we enjoy him, we know his blessing, his smile of approval, and we enjoy life, and we can't then wait to read the Bible and pray and obey him more. And as we obey him more, we enjoy him more, and so it goes on. It's great to be on a roll. Now that's what we see in Haggai from chapter 1 onwards. The people of God on a roll, making the Lord's priorities their own priorities, building the temple, going on with it. It began back in chapter 1, do you remember? Chapter 1 verse 12. The whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. 
Chapter 1, verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And so we've seen over these last weeks they began building the temple and because they obeyed the Lord and built the temple, by the time we came uh, last time to chapter 2, verse 19, they were promised the blessing of being in sweet communion with their God. Remember at chapter 2, verse 19, from this day on I will bless you. And you see, once we enjoy our God, we listen to him and we want to obey him more. That's what's going on here in Haggai. Now, having seen that pattern in Haggai, I've been asking myself, what would it look like if, if, if we here, the church family at Christ Church Forward, if that happened to us? God's people, all of us, stirred up by the Spirit of God to be obedient to the Word of God. God's people collectively stirred up to be single-minded in this priority of building God's kingdom. What would that look like? We see, the book of Haggai tells me a number of things would happen. Firstly, we'd be a giving people. See, just as we saw back in chapter 1, we'd be a people putting the kingdom of God first. That would touch our wallets and our, and our diaries. We'd, we'd give our time and our money to the task. If, this, if we were stirred up like this, we'd be a giving people. Secondly, we'd be a united people. See, when you read the book of Ezra, which is the historical book behind the book of Haggai, you see how the people of God were united in the common purpose of building the temple. And when that happens, secondary issues fall away. Secondary issues that cause division don't really matter because we're, we're on a mission together. Backbiting and tittle-tattle disappear. We've got a mission. We'd be a giving people, we'd be a knighted people, we'd be an evangelistic people. See, they were building the temple. For us, as we've seen over these weeks, that's building the church, building up the people of God, longing to reach out with the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone we know. Wasn't it encouraging hearing about the conversations that we've been having with people uh, during this week? Uh, fourthly, we'd be a faithful people. We saw last week in, in chapter 2, verses 10 to 19, we'd recognise how sin defiles us and ruins life. We'd want to put sin out of our lives. We'd long to be holy, obedient Christians. And then as we did that, fifthly, we'd be a blessed people. We know, chapter 2, verse 19, this, this joy of the blessing of God, of being in fellowship with our God. And then sixth, we'd be an attractive people. See, if all that happened, if we became generous and united and evangelistic and faithful and blessed, well then the community around us would would see a vibrancy in our worship, beauty in our lives, integrity and, and commitment in our fellowship. We'd be an attractive people to be around. It would be quite spectacular, wouldn't it? If the Spirit of God stirred up the people of God to obey the Word of God, we'd be a giving people, a united people, an evangelistic people, a faithful people, a blessed people, an attractive people, and we would be a persecuted people. <laughs> you knew it was not going to carry on being this good, didn't you? This is where the rubber hits the road. If we were completely sold out for Jesus as the people of God, we would come up against opposition. We'd have the open mic here and uh, some people would come up and say, great, I had a great conversation about Jesus. And then they'd say, and you know, I've got a really hard time for it. You see, it is that issue, that issue of, 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 of these people going wholeheartedly and building the temple and then having a hard time that is the backdrop behind these last verses in Haggai. 
these verses, chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. If you're taking notes, here's your first main point. Opposition is inevitable. See, opposition comes when we are sold out for Jesus Christ. And that's why we need to hear these verses, verses 20 to 23. You'll find them wonderfully encouraging tonight. See, in verse 21, you'll see that Haggai was to give this prophecy to Zerubbabel. The other prophecies through the book have been given, yes, to Zerubbabel, but never just to him, often to Zerubbabel and Joshua, or Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant, or to the priests, or to the entire people. But Haggai was to give this word just to Zerubbabel. Do you see it there in verse 21? Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. Zerubbabel needed to hear this message because Zerubbabel had been in exactly this position before. If you've been here over the last uh, few weeks, you'll remember the state of play, where we got to before we broke off for a week. Uh, This is where we got to. Remember chapter 2, verse 18, the foundation of the temple had been laid. And while the building work was happening, some people were looking down their noses, suggesting that this temple was nothing compared to the former temple. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 3. Now, reaching that stage in the building work and hearing those comments from others would have given Zerubbabel a real sense of deja vu. You know that when you think you've been somewhere before? Usually you haven't. Zerubbabel would have thought, I've been here before, and he had. Exactly here. In fact, God's people collectively had been here before. They got this far before in building the work, in building, laying the foundation. And the last time it came to a grinding halt. Uh, Look, keep your finger in that Haggai or your um, service sheet or something and come back with me to Ezra, to the first of those two readings that we had earlier in the service, to page 475. Page 475. Ezra is a great book to read alongside Haggai because Ezra is the historical background to the book of Haggai. And as I've been studying, I've understood so much more about Haggai than I would have done because I've read Ezra. It's a great way to read the Bible. When you're reading one of the Old Testament prophets, find where it relates to, find the, the sort of the historical narrative in the Bible and it gives you some framework on which to, to, to drop the, uh, um, uh, the, uh, the other book into. Uh, Now, Ezra is just like that. Uh, In the first part of Ezra, the first four chapters, this is when God's people first returned from exile and they started rebuilding the temple. And we see they got as far as laying the foundation. Uh, It was read earlier for us, but have a look at it again. Chapter 3, verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with the trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with their symbols, took their places to praise the Lord. They were so thrilled. We've done it. We've laid the foundation. Brilliant. Isn't that fantastic? And they wanted to praise God. Now remember, this is pre-Haggai. Haggai doesn't turn up until chapter 5. So this is pre-Haggai, yet it all sounds very familiar, doesn't it? The foundation of the temple has been laid... Um, As you read on in uh, in Ezra chapter 3, you see that the old guard were comparing this temple with the former temple, uh, which is exactly what we saw uh, in Haggai. Uh, Have a look at chapter 3, verse 12. But many of the older priests and the Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. See the, uh, the parallels? Uh, The temple uh, foundation has been laid. 
the former God have been saying it's nothing compared to the old one. And then what happens next? Chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Opposition comes. See, chapter 4, verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord their God, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let's help you build. Well, Zerubbabel's going to have nothing of it. And so, chapter 4, verse 4. The peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counsellors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Opposition came then, and the building project came to a complete halt. And you can see that in chapter 4, verse 24. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. No more building was done on the temple until, chapter 5, verse 1, Haggai arrived on the scene. There's our hero, Haggai. Haggai's turned up in in the book of Ezra. Now, that's a, a little bit of history that helps you understand the book of Haggai better. And so, as we return to the book of Haggai, now put yourself in Zerubbabel's shoes. The work of the rebuilding of the temple had begun again. The foundation of the temple had been laid again. Some of the old guard were saying again, this temple isn't a patch on the former temple. And so quite unwittingly, Zerubbabel found himself in exactly the same situation again. It was a mirror image of the first attempt at rebuilding the temple. And last time it came to nothing because of pagan opposition. And that is exactly why the Lord spoke to Zerubbabel through Haggai in chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. Because in Ezra chapter 5, we see that in Haggai's day, opposition came also in an attempt to stop the rebuilding of the temple. At this point in Haggai, everything is going well and the next thing that is going to happen is they are going to have opposition to stop rebuilding the temple. Now this is the point. Whenever we're about the the work of the Lord, whenever we bring our lives in line with his plans for the world, when we're on a roll, opposition will come. The Apostle Paul said, if anyone wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Opposition will come. And lots of you know that. I think of a friend of mine, a surgeon. He's a great example of a man single-minded in evangelism. If he'd have been here, I mean, he wouldn't have boasted about it, but he could have come up and told us loads of stories in the last week about the conversations he's had because he's always having conversations about Jesus. He never misses an opportunity. He's been instrumental in many, many people becoming followers of Jesus. He's influenced many Christians to be single-minded in devotion to the Lord. And people are out to get him. He's had his name dragged through the mud in the local press. His colleagues have accused him of malpractice at work. He's been, well, he hasn't been struck off, but they wanted him to be struck off. Uh, And after a long, drawn-out and painful investigation, he's been completely cleared. But you see, people have stirred up trouble for him because he is uncompromising in his Christian commitment. That's just one story. I was thinking about other stories I could tell you. I could tell you stories of people I know who've been disowned by their family because they've owned Christ. And people who've lost their jobs because they've stood for Jesus. Stand up for Jesus and you will be persecuted. 
And of course it's not just individuals who find opposition against them. Whole churches are targeted when they are about the work of the Lord. Over these past months we've been alerted to the situation in Orissa in India. Tens of thousands of Christians have had to flee from villages being cleansed by militant Hindus. At our church family prayer meeting on Wednesday we heard of the persecution that the church in Eritrea is experiencing. Oh, we might expect it there, you know, in those sort of far-flung parts of the world, but uh, it's been well documented too in these last months how churches in the US and in Canada, Anglican churches in the US and in Canada, are being opposed. In North America, churches who are standing up for truth and who are seeking to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ are being opposed. By whom? Do you know where it's coming from? from the establishment, other people in the Anglican church. Opposition comes when we're about the work of the Lord. Zerubbabel knew that. He'd experienced it before. At this very point, they'd built the wall. They'd, sorry, they'd built the, 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 the foundation. They'd got to that point before and he knows the next thing that's going to come is, is opposition. And that's why the Lord spoke through Haggai to encourage him to stand firm. Opposition is inevitable. When it comes, know that, secondly, God's kingdom is immovable. Look at Haggai chapter 2, verse 21. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. Oh, we saw that same expression a couple of weeks ago in chapter 2, verse 6. And when we looked at it then, we looked at the book of Hebrews. Uh, but we're going to do that again, just so that we've got it clear. Uh, again, keep your finger uh, in, in the Bible and uh, come with me to the book of Hebrews. This is the last cross-reference tonight. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 26 to 28. Page 1211, uh, if you have a church Bible. And here we'll understand what it means that the Lord will shake the heavens and the earth. Again, a little tip for Bible study. It's always good to, uh, if the New Testament quotes an Old Testament verse, see how it quotes it. And then you get New Testament control. You understand what it really means. Well, that's what's going on with Hebrews 12, verses 26 to 28. Look out for the phrase, I will shake the heavens and the earth. Look, Hebrews 12, 26. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot, cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God. You see, he's quoting Haggai. The writer to the Hebrews points us to a day in the future, a day when the heavens and the earth will be shaken, a day when all created things will be removed, verse 27. A day when what cannot be shaken will remain. And what is it that cannot be shaken and that never can be removed, verse 28? God's kingdom. Is that encouraging? God's kingdom cannot be shaken. It cannot be removed. Everything else in this world will be shaken and destroyed one day, like the effect of a mega earthquake. God's kingdom will never be shaken, though, when that happens. And so you see the point as we return to Haggai chapter 2. The Lord was assuring Zerubbabel that the kingdom of God is unshakable and never-ending. What the Lord builds will not be destroyed. I will shake the heavens and the earth, he says. Everything else will come tumbling down, but what I'm building, my kingdom, will not move. 
Here, actually, in Haggai 2, it's more literally, I am shaking, I am presently shaking the heavens and the earth. This is not just a promise for the future, although its ultimate fulfilment will be worked out on that final day. It's a promise for now. The Lord is now building a kingdom that can never be shaken, a kingdom that can never be removed. And he is already shaking things that are not part of his kingdom but come in opposition to it. He is already removing things that oppose his work. When I was thinking about this this week, I found this marvellously encouraging. Here we are now officially in recession. We knew it was coming, it's now official. We've moved from credit crunch to economic downturn to recession. And this financial crisis is making us realise how shaky things are. We see companies going to the wall, great institutions on the edge of collapsing or actually collapsing, savings being wiped out, stocks and shares falling. Everything's very shaky. It is scary for anyone at the moment whose life is tied up with these things, all of us to a certain extent, but if you've invested in those things, how scary it is for you. We are learning the things that won't stand up in tough times. And it all shows us that it's just not safe to be relying on the things of this world, the things we thought would never move. The banks collapsing. Well, look, it's not just uh, wise to be investing. It's just not wise to be investing in the things of, of this world. But here we see exactly where it is wise to be investing. Here in Haggai chapter 2, the Lord says, being part of the kingdom of heaven, investing in the work of the kingdom of heaven, throwing your lot in with the kingdom of heaven, that's sensible because it is secure and safe and certified. It is guaranteed by our God. That will never be shaken. Every investment you put into the kingdom of God will stand. Isn't that wonderfully reassuring? God's kingdom is immovable. So when I invest in his kingdom, I'm making the very best investment I can ever make. Want to know what to do with your money? Put it into gospel ministry. You'll get a return forever. Such an exciting way to live as well, isn't it, doing that? Someone said to me, I wonder what life is all about sometimes. He went on to explain how he was thinking. He said, for a lucky few, life seems to mean something. They seem to be part of something big, something important, something that matters. But for most of us, life is ordinary and mundane and small. Do you feel like that? Many people do. It's one of the things that hits people in midlife. I mean, I know nothing about that, but I'm told. Uh, (laughs) Life, for for many people at that point, just seems to be so routine. I've gone through all of this life and and it's passing me by. It's just so ordinary, so run-of-the-mill. People want to feel, they need to feel they're part of something big or significant. Christian, you need never feel that. The Lord says in building the kingdom of heaven you are part of something that is shaking the heavens and the earth. You are part of the only thing in the universe that will last. Is that brilliant? You are part of something that's big if you're in the kingdom of God. And if you invest in that work you're you're investing in something that's never going to move. And for Zerubbabel, wondering if his building efforts would come to nothing, that is wonderfully reassuring, isn't it? 
for those people who came up and spoke at the, the, the mic or those who didn't and you talked about those little conversations that you think are quite insignificant you were doing some of the most significant things you could ever do when you were having those conversations this week isn't that brilliant opposition is inevitable so know that secondly God's kingdom is immovable and thirdly God's power is immense look at verse 22 I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. Did you see the language in verse 22? It might not sound very impressive to us. Think of what Zerubbabel was hearing when he heard it. Horses, chariots, riders, royal thrones, foreign kingdoms, they're all the marks of authority and military might. I was trying to think, how would the Lord have written that if, if he was writing to us today? Would it be like this? Would verse 22 read like this? I will overturn prime ministers, presidents and dictators. I will shatter the power of government, superpowers and world authorities. I will overthrow nuclear arsenals and armies of tanks. Warships and complete squadrons of fighter planes will fall. Is that what he'd have said? I think he would. And as he said it, can you hear the awesome power of the Lord Almighty? This is not empty boasting. This is just fact. Uh, In uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, writing, The Silver Chair, one of the uh, Narnia series, uh, Jill Pohl has just arrived in Narnia. Jill. She's never met Aslan before, even heard of him. But she's uh, thirsty and desperate for water and she hears a gentle trickle of running water. And as she heads towards the sound of the water, she comes face to face with Aslan for the first time. She is terrified by the lion. But he is standing between her and the stream of water that she is so desperate for, she's getting more and more parched. Aslan invites her to come and drink from the stream. She's too scared to go. And she asks him some questions. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promises, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry nor as if it were angry. It just said it. It's great, that, isn't it? It just said it. I see, that's what's going on in verse 22, isn't it? The Lord tells us that he has power over everything. The Lord doesn't say it as if he's boasting or sorry or angry. He he just says it. Because he is that powerful. What a massive encouragement for us when we face opposition, as Zerubbabel was facing to know that God's power is immense. And we do need to know that because let's face it, uh, when we stand up for Christ, those who oppose us are very powerful themselves, are they not? When the communists first gained control in Ethiopia, Sunday after Sunday, gunmen would arrive at a church, remove the entire congregation and none of them were ever seen again. Men and women, boys and girls, gone forever without a trace. And then the next Sunday, the gunman went to another church, and the next Sunday to another, every man and woman and child disappeared, never to be seen again. 
See, those who oppose the Lord do seem very powerful indeed. And sometimes it does seem that they can stop the Lord's plans to build his kingdom. Uh, Indeed, it seemed they had when Zerubbabel and the others first set to work on building the temple. And now he's worried that they're going to do it again as they've set to work the second time. How reassuring then to hear the Lord say, verse 22, I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. He's saying, I will remove opposition against those who build my church. See, Jesus said it actually, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Oh, we've seen the truth of it. Uh, Recent church history is full of stories of of whole states and, and ideologies coming against the church, trying to destroy the church. I think of uh, Russia and China, most obviously. Uh, Communism trying to destroy the church or control the church and the real church, the remnant going underground, only to pop up years later when the ideology has disappeared or relaxed. The church pops up years later stronger and full of life. See, that's the Lord doing verse 22, overthrowing those who oppose him and continuing to build his church. As Zerubbabel actually saw this prophecy fulfilled in his own day. I won't do the cross-reference with you now. We've done enough for backing and falling. But if you want to follow this up, when you get home, notice the word overthrow in verse 22. And then have a little read of Ezra chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, where you'll see the same word overthrow is used as King Darius issued a decree that no one should stop the building work. Zerubbabel saw this happening in his lifetime. What a huge encouragement for us to continue on the work of building the church even when opposition comes. When we're on the Lord's side, you and I are on the side of the great superpower in the universe. A superpower that no one will topple. Oh, don't mishear it. This is not a promise that opposition won't seem to have the upper hand. This is not a promise that every bit of gospel ministry we ever do will succeed. Zerubbabel has already knows that's not true. But it is telling us that when we are about God's building God's kingdom, he will build his kingdom. Nothing can shake the kingdom of God. We're on the side of the world's superpower. What an encouragement to keep going with gospel work when opposition comes. Opposition is inevitable, so be sure God's kingdom is immovable and God's power immense. And very briefly, point four, know that God's authority is imparted. Look at verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you declares the Lord Almighty. What a great, really personal word to Zerubbabel. I'll make you like a signet ring, like my signet ring. The signet ring appears several times in the Bible, Daniel 6, uh, you'll find it in the book of Ezra. A signet ring was a royal seal, a seal of approval. So here the Lord is saying to Zerubbabel, you will have my authority. You're not my signet ring. 
but you will be like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. No, the signet ring, of course, points to Jesus Christ. He is the one with God's authority. He is the chosen one. And we see his authority in his death, in his resurrection, in his mighty ascension, and in his seated at the right hand of the, the Father in glory. He is God's signet ring. But here's the point. As we go about his work of building up the church, when we are obediently doing the Lord's work, when we proclaim the gospel, we go with all the authority of the Lord himself. We become like his signet ring. Jesus said it in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Go with my authority. I'll make you like my signet ring. Isn't that an awesome thought? As you and I proclaim the gospel tomorrow morning, we are proclaiming the message with all the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Now we need to hear that as we go about this work of building the temple, the church. We need to be assured of this as we get on a roll. Because as we do, opposition is going to come. But listen to these last verses. When we're about that work, we are building under the protection of God's immense power. We are building with his awesome authority. And we're building the one thing that will never be shaken, the one thing that will remain standing, and that is the house that God built. Let's pray together.